moving along slowly but surely. And in chapter 26, it is a chapter 26. It is a great hymn of the faith, a great hymn of the faith, uh, a hymn that does three things, praises God for destroying his enemies. Amen. Praise God for that. Can't be saved if he doesn't destroy our enemies. Egypt, uh, Israel can't be free if Pharaoh's armies aren't at the bottom of the Red Sea. That's just how it works. But also this hymn praises God for saving his people and for disciplining his people. So we don't often sing praises to God for giving us a hard spanking, but um, we should though. We should because his discipline of us is one of the ways that he saves us and preserves us. And so that's what this hymn is all about. And we'll begin in verse 1. And it says, In that day, this song will be sung. So there is a day that is future to Isaiah. He calls it that day. And we've been reading that about that day since chapter 1. And what is that day in those last days, in that latter day? What is the great day that Isaiah has been talking about for 26 chapters? Talking about the time between the first and the second advent. He's talking about what we might call the messianic age, the time where Jesus Christ rules over the world from his appointed throne. And so are we in that day? Yes. So this was future for Isaiah. He had not yet seen it. He longed to see it. He had not yet seen it, seen it. But we see it. We experience it today. So we might read verse 26 in this day. This song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. This is the song. You can see it in quotes there. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. So just real quick understanding it. Who is the we? That's the church. And what do we as the church have? A strong city. That's right. It doesn't say we will one day have a strong city when Jesus returns at the end of human history. It says in that day in the Messianic age, we will have, we have a strong city. And what is the name of that city in the book of Revelation? Zion is one name for it, referring to the hill. And what is the other name for the city? The new Jerusalem. That's right. The heavenly Jerusalem. That's the, this is a hymn singing a long, long time ago in Isaiah's day, nearly 3,000 years ago, singing about one day there would be the heavenly Jerusalem. And is that city here among us? Yes. Has it um, manifested itself completely and utterly? Not yet, but John saw in the last book of, the, of Revelation, he saw it coming from heaven to earth. It's on its way. It's, it's already um, appearing. And, and, and to the degree that we are holy and righteous and faithful and living out the Christian life as a community, we experience uh, a, a tangible um, aspects of the New Jerusalem. We get to enjoy its safety, its peace, its security, its blessings, etc. So we have a strong city. We could sing this with this hymn. And the city has walls. And, and what are the walls? The walls are salvation. You see that? He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. So we have our city, the New Jerusalem, the church, has walls around it and massive fortifications, bulwarks with cannons that no one can topple. And it's called, and the walls are called salvation. So when someone is saved, what happens? 
they, pass, they are passing through the pearly gates, to use John's illustration. But here, you, when you pass through the gates and you are entered into the city, you are saved. You are safe. You are a citizen of the city of God. Amen? Amen. All right. Jared, we get that propane tank open? I can't. I'm obsessed about it. We've got to get that figured out. I don't know what it is. All right. <clears throat> so what are some of the attributes of this city? Well, it has walls which are salvation, but it's also very strong. It's very strong. You see that? And because of the strength of this city and because of the salvation that we enjoy, we sing a song and a hymn of joy. And uh, just as a little side note, this is why people, some people believe all you should sing are psalms in church. Um, but the people who say, no, you should sing hymns too. But one, of the, one of their arguments is this particular chapter. You see, it says literally right here in the Messianic age, we will sing this song. And it's not one of the psalms. And so we can sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Makes sense? So, but let's talk about a city. Um, in what way is the church a city? Or what is a city even? Right. What do y'all think? When it, whenever you think of the city, what are the, what are the things you think of? Josh is like, oh. Yeah, downtown of New Jerusalem is beautiful, though. I mean, glimmering lights, uh, jazz, jasper, uh, glowing, uh, rainbow green jazz. Yeah, maybe some. Uh, beautiful sea, streets of gold, uh, the tree of life down the corridor. That's how John. So the downtown of the New Jerusalem is beautiful. Um, but most downtowns these days are not great. Um, downtown uh, Opelousas is not great. Um, it's broke down, disintegrated. Yeah, it, it used to be. You remember those days, huh? It used to be very. It used to be a happening place. Um, downtown. What are some good downtowns? There's a few places where they're restoring the downtowns and making them kind of nice. But it's nice downtown Franklin. Downtown Bro Bridge is coming along. Yeah, yeah. Um, but when we think of a city, a lot of us think of, uh, more crime, um, because there's more people and a lot of different kind of people that all kind of hate each other. Um, at least that's what we think of in our mind. They say that, um, the loneliest people live in cities, that, uh, there's a lot of people that report dealing with loneliness in big cities. You wouldn't think that would be the case that if you lived in New York city and you had a thousand neighbors within a stone's throw, you'd think you'd have tons of friends, but they, they say that people struggle with loneliness in those, uh, in those big cities like that. That's interesting. But in the city of God, in the New Jerusalem, should it be a place of violence and strife and contention and loneliness? Not at all, right? Not at all. A city, if you want to know a technical definition, a city is an organized society. It's an organized society. And a church is an organized society. You know, some people say they hate organized religion. That's just another way of saying they hate community because community has to be has to be organized. I got to move this thing. Bailey's trying to see around Aaron. It's distracting. It's like <laughs> He's a, no, it's not your fault, Aaron. You can't help it. All right. But an organized society. But if you're going to organize um, a church, <laughs> you look relaxed. If you're going to organize a uh, if you're going to organize a a club or a group, what's the most important thing about organizing anyone? You, well, you sure you need hierarchy. You got to have hierarchy, and if you don't appoint hierarchy in some way, 
or have a constitutional documents or covenantal documents to show how you come together to find a leader and agree upon a leader. If you don't have that, then eventually there's going to be a leader. It's just going to be the loudest person or something like that or the or the the meanest person or whatever. But yeah, you got to have a hierarchy. Every organization of humans, like every community has hierarchy. That's true. What else do you have to have if you're going to organize a club or a got to have something in common. There has to be something um, that you Something you, as Paul McCartney says, you uh, come together around. Something you have to come together around. Right? So for a homeowners association, what are you coming together around? You know, ideally, you're coming together to make your neighborhood safer and uh, make sure it, it maintains its values or at least appreciates in value and doesn't depreciate in value. But the problem with homeowners associations is the people, Right? Isn't that a bummer, though? Isn't that a bummer? We think of a, an organized community, and the first thing we think of is tensions and fights and strife. Um, if you're going to organize a, um, I don't know, a school. Right, there's been a lot of people who have been organizing homeschool co-ops and homeschools lately because of all the, uh, the government interference and difficulties with the public schools starting with COVID. So a lot of people are pulling their kids out of public school, and they're starting homeschool groups. And, uh, and they do it for a bunch of different reasons. You have, let's say you have 50 families and they pull a homeschool co-op together. Some people are there because they don't want their children to think they can dress as a girl and become one. And other people are there because they want higher math scores for their kids. And other people are there because they want to take off when they want to take off. And they, everybody has their own little agendas. Um, I would argue that when they don't have a common ideal a common purpose that is really, really deep, then more than likely the thing will fall apart as, as people find other ways to meet those particular needs. And we organize this school, this community, um, around common ideals, common vision, common purpose, which we have written down in various places. But to the degree that people have that common desire and common vision for the education, the Christian education of their children, they stick closer. But if they have a different vision, Usually it causes division. They go off and find it somewhere else, right? But the point is that community has uh, something in common. It has a core. And the, the, what we have as in common at the city of God, the New Jerusalem, is, of course, Jesus Christ, right? And not just him as a person, but also everything that he says, his doctrines. To the degree that we are like him and think like him and believe and obey his word, we will have more Community. More synergy. Yes, but first, before the synergy, community. Just peace and relationships. What does it mean to have community? Like, think about the word. It's unity and then and common. You have a common unity, basically meaning you have, you have something you center on. That's Jesus Christ, right? But it's more than just that. It's also because you have Jesus Christ at the center and he has shed his blood when you sin against each other, you have a, a means for reconciliation. You see what I mean? You, you not only have something to come together on, you have something to stick together on. So what that means is you're able to be yourself. You're able to be yourself. You're able to um, lighten up a little bit. You, know, you, like, you like spending time with people that you always have to be on your, your best behavior. You know, walking on eggshells, have to mind your manners all the time because they're going to jump down your throat or judge you, or, or use that against you in some other place. Ugh, 
Who wants to hang out with people like that? Not me. Usually you see those people, you try to avoid them, right? Because they're just going to suck joy right out of your heart. And, uh, and when they come around, like you could be talking to seven friends and you're all open and vulnerable and casual and having a good time. And everyone kind of knows each other and knows each other's screw-ups, you know, and works through it and gives grace and charity and thinks the best and gives the benefit of the doubt, covers offenses in the blood of Christ. And you've worked on that and you've got that awesome community. And then that one person can walk into the group and you're like, boop, boop. And you throw, you zip it up tight. You're like, yes, sir, no, sir, right away, sir. Everything you behave, your best. Because you don't trust you don't, that you can be vulnerable in front of that person and them remain loyal to you. I would say the key to community is not only have to have something at the center, but you also have to have the freedom. You have to know that that person is going to apply the blood. You know what I mean? Like they know how this works. And so you can, you can then be vulnerable with them, and, you, and they will be loyal in return. And they will be vulnerable with you, and you will be loyal in return. So you can be yourself, right? So you can be yourself. Um, that's, I think, what community is. And I think Christ and the blood of Christ at the center of our community allows us to have that feeling of companionship and fellowship and friendship, what we call community. Now, the world talks about community all the time, don't they? That L.A. community, hashtag that L.A. community, hashtag that downtown Lafayette community. I see it all over Insta. They have a version of community, but what is that the common, what is their common the thing that they center on. The self. But I mean, imagine a society where everyone thinks they're God and that their self is the most important. Can you really center around anything? Can you even have community when everyone is God? All it is is crashing into each other and chaos and division. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? What they would need if they're going to create community is they would need some alternate religion, really. Because... At the center of any community, really what it is, is religion. It's word, which strung together forms doctrines, which when put into practice is your religion, which builds your culture. That's every community really at the center of it has a religion. And so because they've kicked Christ out, that's the one thing they all agree on, they have to have a new religion. And the new religion is secularism or the LGBT or, or wokeism or the, whatever the rainbow flag represents. That is what they are trying to bring to be the center of their religion, which is one of the reasons why you see them hanging in every downtown. So you have, <clears throat> so you have uh, leftist socialists. The one thing they can agree on is Christians are nuts. No Jesus. You got, maybe you got uh, right-wing Nazis. No Jesus. You got uh, people that have these agendas for the city. You got the crunchy uh, hipsters. You got the hippies. You got the, uh, I don't know, name all the various groups you got. The Rastafarians, I don't know. Just name all the various groups you got. Come together. Really, it's either for me or against me. And so when they come together without Christ and without the blood, they have no way of atonement. And, and I, I believe that's the reason why the city of man has no peace. It's contentious and filled with strife and violence and tribalism and, and, and uh, a distrust of neighbors and eventually loneliness and eventually loneliness. So we, however, have a strong city within its walls. We are saved. It's an organized society around a common covenant 
with Jesus Christ, with a common faith, common law, common vision for the future. And because of that, we enjoy shalom. We enjoy shalom. And, uh, and uh, I think to the extent that we follow Christ and are like Christ and center on Christ, we could, over time, demonstrate to the world what it's like to actually have friends, what it's actually like to have a community. I, you know, and I, and I, and have y'all, have y'all been there where your friend, where other people not Christians have noticed that you have church friends and you're always like, and what's the, what's their word for that? Yeah, it's cult. Their word for that is cult. They're like, that's weird. All right. So it must be a cult. Now it's not technically what the, a definition of a cult is, um, <clears throat> but they see it and it's so odd and so strange to them. I mean, I went to church when I was a kid, but we didn't like hang with people. We didn't know people because they, are, they went to an audience driven church where it's just an aggregation of audience members that are there for to receive religious goods and services for a few minutes on Sunday morning. And uh, but they, they didn't have a city. They weren't a city. They weren't an organized society. And uh, <clears throat> so moving on, verse two, in the hymn, he shouts, open the gates, right? open the gates of salvation. That's the gospel call that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. Right. So we got this nation. And who is the who is this righteous nation that is allowed entrance into the city of God, the the new Jerusalem? What does Peter call this righteous nation? Anyone know? He calls it a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's right. And he's just quoting Moses. Moses called um, the church a holy nation. So you have this holy nation or this righteous nation that keeps faith. They get to come in to the city. So you see the two, the two characteristics of the citizens of the city. They are righteous. So what does that mean? That means you have two things. It means you have the righteousness of Christ imputed to you by grace through faith, not of your own self, Right? So you have the righteousness of Christ imputed to you, so you have standing there. And, but it also means God is working righteousness in your heart. You're being sanctified. And if you don't have the righteousness of Christ imputed to you, if you're not justified before the Lord, and he's not causing you to become more righteous, then you are not a member of the city. You're an imposter. You've, you've tried to come in not through the narrow gate. You've tried to come in. You're a thief or a robber, and you've tried to break in some other way. It also says you keep faith, which means you persevere in loyalty to Christ. You persevere in trusting God that he will fulfill his covenant promises, and that trust manifests itself in obedience to his law. That's keeping faith. You're loyal. You're loyal to Jesus. You trust him, and therefore you obey him, and you keep on doing that. That's what the citizens of the city of God are like. And if you don't have that, eventually it demonstrates itself because you walk out the doors, and you leave. You leave the community. That's usually what happens, all right? <clears throat> That's why John Owen said um, refusing to attend church and, and be a part of the church community is the first step towards apostasy. All right? Or to put it in modern lingo, church hopping is the first stage of apostasy. That's the first stage. Right? Not that everyone that leaves the church is going to be an apostate, but it is the first stage. It is the first stage. Hopping, progressive. All right, moving on to verse 3. We see the attributes of the city of God. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. So we see in the city of God, there is peace, shalom, 
right? It's not a place of conflict and strife and war and violence and, and uh, carjacking and bank robbing. It's, it's, a, it's a place of peace where you can be at rest with God and rest with one another. Right? But which, which people in the city of God are able to keep the peace, maintain the peace? It's only those people whose mind has stayed on God. You see that right there? And, and anyone or any one of us at any point in time who begins to stray and our mind becomes attached to things other than God, um, we, we begin to lose peace. Lose peace with God and with, with one another. So in other words, when the peace in a church is disrupted when somebody starts worshiping an idol, when someone takes their anchor off of the bedrock of Christ, which is stayed and restful and tranquil and there's peace when someone takes their anchor off christ and puts it onto money or ego or selfishness or um, control that's when the peace begins to decrease in that particular person's life and in their relationships but if you are stayed on god if you are obsessed with god if you are focused on god if you are um, seeking first god and putting himself first and obeying his commandments, then he will keep you at peace. Which means he will keep shalom in your life, keep you from being at war and strife with the other people in the new Jerusalem. See what I mean? Peace is total health on the inside and the outside for the whole city. Restored relationships, no war, prosperity, shalom. And he keeps the church the city of God like that to the extent that they are stayed, stayed on him. Y'all see that right there? All right. Meanwhile, the city of man is not like that. The city of man is not filled with peace, but with strife because their mind is stayed on everything but God. They're not centered on God. And what is the means through which he keeps the perfect peace? The means is because he trusts in you. You see right there? You, you keep your mind stayed on God. You stay obsessed with God, wanting to obey him, wanting to live for him, wanting to do whatever he wants you to do with, when you trust him. Right? By grace, through faith. And then in verse 4, if y'all can see that, is a command. So you've got to picture this. This is the church, the New Jerusalem, singing a hymn. And in verse 4, it goes from a, a sentence to a command. You see that? Trust in the Lord. So who are they talking to? Well, they're talking to each other, they're talking to themselves, but they're also shouting to the city of man. They're shouting to non-Christians, trust in the Lord. It's not a question, it's not a suggestion, it is a duty, it is a command. And you need to remember that because I, I think we, we sometimes forget that not trusting God is actually a sin, right? <laughs> That's a major sin. Oh, ye of little faith means you're struggling with sin. Okay, um, we must trust God. It is a duty. It is a command. But it's through our trust in him that he gives us grace and keeps us at peace and keeps us stayed on him. Trust the Lord forever. How can you trust him forever? What if he changes his mind? What if he, he uh, you know, varies in some way? Oh, no, that will never happen because you see the Lord God is an everlasting rock. He is stable. He is unchanging. You can trust in him. Whatever promises he made, to you, he will absolutely fulfill. Amen? Amen. 
All right, so if we're building this city, we're, what are we going to build this city on? Rock and roll. Rock and roll. That's right. <laughs> I was setting you up for that one, Tim. All right, that's the old one. Y'all know what he, that joke? Jude, okay, y'all little, little, what is that, sticks? It's not Tears for Fears. No. Starship, Jefferson Starship? Interesting. All right, anyway, 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 all right. <laughs> No, we're building this city on, on the rock where we trust him, keep our mind focused on him so that he can give us peace and shalom and companionship and community. And to the degree we do this, we can be a good, faithful witness to the city of man. All right. So speaking of the city of man, we're about to move to that in verse five. But any questions before we continue? Is the church a nation? Yes, it's an organized community with hierarchy and something in common, common vision, common goals, common law. In that sense, it's a nation, right? Is it a city? Yes, the church is a city, organized community, organized society, right? And that city, yes, as Jesus says, is on a hill. It shines the light of, of good work. So this is sort of, this hymn is an extended metaphor to some degree, and that city has already come. So remember Abraham, what was he doing the whole time? He was looking for a city, which was a metaphor. He knew there wasn't some giant celestial city. that it, He knew heaven had not yet come down to, the, to earth. To look for, is a, an, it means he, was his, he had hope in that one day it would come, that he had faith that it would come, that all of his efforts were leading toward that. Right? He had faith in the city that would come, the city whose architect and builder was the Lord. Well, it did come. 2,000 years ago, Jesus established it. John saw it coming out of heaven, and it is here on earth to some degree. And we can enjoy it as we trust in God, stay it on him, and we can shine the light of it, and, and, uh, and we can manifest it in this world. And uh, I think that's pretty cool. But the city of man is... Um, not like that at all. And by the way, for if, if y'all don't know this, the city of God and the city of man is a, are the words that Augustine used in his great book, The, the City of God. Have y'all heard of that book before? So Rome had been destroyed. Rome had been around for quite a, quite a while, and it, had been, it was a Christian city, kind of. It at least had somewhat of a Christian uh, past, and, and it was destroyed by the barbarian hordes. From the north, the Germans and Celts and various people, the Visigoths, Goths. And so everyone was wondering, if God's true and his promises are true, how did like the, the nicest churches and the, you know, the capital city uh, get destroyed and get looted like this? And so Augustine wrote this book, The City of God, to show the world why God destroyed Rome. And basic, the basic premise of the book is that it's because Rome was persecuting the church. That's what he said. And if in any city that turns on the Christians is, is manifesting the heart of the city of man, and it will be destroyed by God. And uh, other historians will point out that the Visigoths and the Goths and all these people were Christians. Now, they were little heretical Christians. They were Arians. They didn't have all their doctrines right. But some historians would argue they were much more Christian than the urban Romans. And God, God basically gave the city to them and took it from the, 
from the uh, from the Romans. Anyway, I don't I don't know that to be true or not or certain, but very interesting. But that's where the phrase "city of God, city of man" comes from. And where does Augustine get this concept? He gets it from from Isaiah and other places, obviously. So let's see what happens to the um, city of man. Verse five. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. So the only way our walls can be safe and we can be secure and have shalom and enjoy is if that city is destroyed. As I said earlier, the Israelites can't be free until the Egyptians are buried at the bottom of the Red Sea. That's part of salvation is the destruction of your enemies, the defeat of the tyrant, the breaking down of the evil regimes of this world. And so he shows the praise for building this beautiful, majestic, heavenly city. And now he gives praise for destroying the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. That's proud and haughty. But when a city is lofty, it means it's way up on the top of a mountain. And they, they don't think that they can be defeated. Right? Can you think of any cities that are like that today? Lofty, arrogant, proud. They don't think that anything can touch them. Yeah, basically all the big cities of the United States. The United States as a whole is a lofty nation, a lofty city. We've, we feel like we are invincible. We really do. Ah, let's see what we'll do today. We'll fight this war, fight this war. We'll do this, we'll do that. We'll see. We'll see what God does. All right? Later on in the chapter, and in many chapters of Isaiah, well, I'll, we'll get to that in a second. Just remind me to go through the last two verses of this chapter before we end, okay? Because it's God's instructions for the meantime. Uh, he lays it low. So the city of man is laid low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. Any city that would persecute Christians and shake their fist at God and center on uh, hatred of Jesus can expect eventual demise in his timing. Right? He's not going to destroy all the rebellious cities and nations at one time. Because then what would happen? That's right. That's good. We wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to handle it. The Christians, there wouldn't be enough Christians exercising enough dominion with enough division of labor and specialization to subdue the earth. Uh, we, there has to be scaffolding for a season. Right? The building's not ready to stand on its own. So he doesn't do it all at once, but he does do it here and there. And look how he destroys the city. Is it with cannons? Is it with the mighty? Is it with celebrities that convert to Christianity? Right? (laughs) Right? (laughs) Like, if if only we could get a few celebrities. If If only a politician would be a Christian. If only some, like, really rich and powerful person would become a Christian. Then we could finally beat the bad guys and and see the world change for Christ. But look at how he lays low the evil city of man. Verse 6, the foot tramples it. All right. Does that ring any bells? Just a foot. It's not a cannon. It's not a nuclear bomb. It's not a, a, a political policy. It's, it's not something powerful or sleek or rich. It's just a foot. Yeah, that's right. Jesus is... Jesus is prophesied to be the one who would step on the head of the serpent. Right? But um, Revelation, well, Peter, Peter says, Peter says this, he says 
And if I can, if I can remember this quote, he says, um, and maybe somebody can find it, he says, wait a little while because soon God will crush Satan under your feet. Under your feet. So, so do what? It's in one. It's either in First or Second Peter. If somebody wants to try to find it, it's is it Romans? Romans uh, Man, impressive. Let's, uh, that's pride. All right. Romans sixteen twenty. What we got? Way to go. Way to go. Is it? Well, you got it right there, Josh. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. Sure. I'm almost done anyway. 16:20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you. All right. So, is Christ going to crush Satan under his foot or is the church going to crush Satan under their feet? Yes. Cuz we are united to Christ. And what kind of Christians are we referring to? Well, most Christians, the feet of the poor. Most Christians are really nobodies. Right? They're persecuted, they're marginalized, they're poor. They're not really high and mighty. God does save a few princes and, and rich people. That's nice, that's fine. Right? But the Bible says not many of you are wise. Like Not many of you are professors. Not many of you are wealthy. Not many Christians are billionaires. Not many of you are kings and powerful people. Most of us are just humble nobodies. And he says that's the, those are the feet that are going to trample the city of man. Right? And if you want to borrow some analogies from Joshua, inhabit their uh, buildings. And uh, the wealth of the wicked is stored up for the righteous. And this, it's not just the feet of the poor. It's just the steps of the needy. It's the nobodies. It's the, it's the know-nothings. It's the little people doing little things, sowing little seeds that God multiplies into a mighty harvest that he uses over time to crush the evil cities, the city of man, and exalt the city of God. That's pretty neat, right? I think that's interesting. Right? So you can see here from verse 6 that, that the devil wins in history, right? No, you can see once again throughout the book of Isaiah that the point is that Jesus and his church wins while there's evil people around, while the city of man is flaunting itself. Right? We win. It's going to take time, and it's going to take us being faithful. Um, or else God's going to do it with somebody else. But we win. Moving on to verse 7. What's going on in the hearts of the citizens? It says, The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. So it's poetic here. But our, our life... So now it's not just the city and the surroundings and our relationships with one, one another, which are marked by peace, and our hearts stayed on God. Now he's talking about the streets of the city, the paths of the city of the city of God is level that means your lifestyle and your life is smooth like if there's obstacles in the way he removes them if there's things that would divert you and send you off to the right or to the left he keeps that from happening he gives you a smooth level straight path right and how is how does that happen well God does it God does it you see that right there the path of the righteous is level. That means the road you're walking on doesn't have a bunch of potholes in it and diversions and, and uh, hazards. How is, it le- how is it level and smooth like that? Well, it's because God makes it that way. You make level the way of the righteous. When you repent and believe on Jesus, he begins to 
make your life level, balanced, smooth, much easier, right? And anybody who became a Christian later in life probably can testify to that, right? But since he's the one that does it, what must we do? How must we participate in this? We have to pray for it, right? And we have to trust him and obey. But then look at number eight, in the path of your judgments. So the path is now called the path of judgments. That doesn't sound smooth. So how do we understand that? It simply means this. Your life is made smooth by God through judging. And he judges your enemies and gets them out of your way. I, I love that. Like I, remember, I, I can remember times in my life where people were just trying to just screw me over. And I remember just praying, God, could you just save me from the, the snare of the fowler? You all know that expression? Like the uh, fowler is someone, they'd have big nets they would put up between trees or uh, on the ground and the birds would just be flying along and they try to it would like catch them and uh and there's a lot of things like god says he's going to protect you from your haters and from people trying to ruin you or temptresses or uh any things like that you know he judges them and gets them out of your path oh that's a lot smoother no more that don't have that pothole anymore that was nice i was all worried about it for a while there and then he just took care of that got him out of here all right wonderful all right but then that's not the only judgment though is it What's your biggest obstacle in life? Haters aren't your biggest obstacle. It's usually right here, right? Here is your biggest obstacle. So it's that judgment. What do you call judgment to a Christian? It's just discipline. The way he makes your path smooth and your life smooth is by spanking you. He gets rid of the bad guys. He gets rid of the bad guys, gets the snakes out of the yard, shoots the coyotes. But then he's got to train you. No, you can't go over there, can't go over there. Got to get spanking. You got to learn no for an answer. Right? It's just like a little kid. And man, like a little kid who is trained by their parents with spankings and the, and the parents have also built a fence to protect them and gotten the, bat, you know, getting the, the wild dogs out of the yard and everything. That little kid's got a great life. Right? What a great and easy life. But it does require some spankings to make your path level and smooth. So what do we do in the hymn? We sing, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. Is he the desire of your soul? I hope so. I hope so. All right, so let's move down to verse 20. This is the postscript. Any questions so far? I only got really one more thing to say or to read. All right, the postscript. So it gets all the way down to the end of the hymn. Okay, it's a long hymn. And uh, maybe we'll, maybe Pastor Scott will put it to music for us. <laughs> if you get a week off, maybe, then you can do it, right? <laughs> but then it gets down to verse 20. And this is a postscript because um, in that day is not the, that day that Isaiah is living in. Okay? So he's excited about this. And they, they love the fact that one day people are going to sing this song. But it's not him just yet. And so these are instructions in the meantime. Starting in verse 20. Come, my people, enter your chambers. See, that's not singing a loud hymn out in the public square, right? This is go into your chambers, right? Go in your house, shut your doors behind you, hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. Man, I, you know, who would want to hear that from the Lord? Might be good to remember this verse, though. Just saying. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will disclose the bloodshed on it 
and will no more cover its slain. So there, that's the postscript. So one day this song will be sung. But right now, just go in your house. Maybe maybe take a, take a chill pill off Facebook. Don't let the tyrant know what you're thinking. All right, I don't, I don't know. You know, just go in your house, shut that door, and uh, just wait it out for a season. I'm not saying that's what we should do right now. I don't, the time's not there for that. But there are times in the history of the church where, as Solomon says, the best thing to do with a tyrant is to keep your head down. You know, I can't remember the exact quote, but it's in Ecclesiastes. It's, best, it's basically like when there's a tyrant rule and lopping people's heads off indiscriminately, best thing to do is stay off the radar. Right? <laughs> and he says, stay off the radar for a little while because it's going to be bad. But one day they're going to sing this great hymn. Amen. We're still singing the hymn today. Hopefully we'll get to keep on singing this hymn for a long time to come and our kids. All right. Well, y'all have a great evening. I ain't got nothing else to say. <laughs>